Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. I'm your host, Jesse Allen, and we got a busy show lined up. We're going to talk with Senator John Bozeman, the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee, coming up here later in the show to discuss the Farm Bill and appropriations process. Lance Zimmerman with Robobank will join us with their latest global protein outlook for 2024. And we'll also talk with Paul Freeman, director of the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, later in the show. First up, though, we're going to learn more about a new study that's looking at soybean cyst nematode resistance, a very important topic for a lot of our soybean farmers in the U.S. Joining us now to tell us more, he is the director of agronomy and research with the Missouri Soybean Association. Dr. Eric Osland is with us. Eric, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, first off, I just want to kind of start uh, before we really dive into this research and uh, the potential here. Uh, obviously, SCN is such a yield-robbing pest. Uh, let's talk about where we're currently at because I know uh, it's no secret to a lot of our farmers uh, that SCN is uh, devastating to a, a lot of crop here across the Midwest, isn't it, Eric? Yeah, it it absolutely is, and you know the one the one thing about soybean cyst nematode that's really concerning is that a lot of times farmers are are getting yield loss from uh, SCN infestations, and you know there's no visual symptomology that actually shows up on the soybean. So um, you know it's kind of a silent yield robber, uh, and a lot of times you know I think when uh, guys are kind of hitting some of these yield plateaus that we see a lot of times in soybeans. Um, you know, I, I often question how much of that could be coming from soybean cyst nematode. And the other part uh, that's that's very concerning with soybean cyst nematode is uh, currently uh, across most of the, the major soybean production regions, we, we kind of have one source of genetic SCN resistance, and that's the PI88788 resistance source. Um, and as we know, really... And as we found out in agriculture, when we use the same resistance source over and over and year after year, uh, we oftentimes start to develop resistance uh, from the pest that that resistance source is trying to control. And that's what we've started to see over the last several years with the PI88788 resistance sources that uh, the soybean cyst nematode are starting to uh, develop the ability to survive and reproduce on that source. So uh, there's really a, a major need in the the agriculture community and the soybean industry for advancement and uh, new uh, innovations in soybean cyst nematode genetic resistance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and that is what this uh, new research is doing. I know researchers from the University of Missouri, University of Georgia, uh, USDA, uh, along uh, with some help, by, I believe, from checkoff funding, uh, are, are finding a new loss of function gene Talk about this research and and what this new gene could potentially do for us in terms of SCN resistance. Yeah, sure. And like you said, this is a, a project funded by the checkoff by the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council, the United Soybean Board, and along with uh, USDA NEFA. But they all all came together uh, and funded a project with Dr. Andrew Scabu at the University of Missouri and Dr. Melissa Mitchum at the University of Georgia, and their research teams. Uh, came together, worked together, and uh, essentially utilizing uh, soybean reference genome, they were able to uh, identify this gene as an alpha snap gene uh, in the soybean genome that essentially gives you know nearly 100% control of the soybean cyst nematode races and biotypes that we're often seeing in the Midwest. And what, like you said, you know what this what this gene combination is doing is essentially providing a loss of function type of a mechanism, uh, which ultimately means that as a soybean cyst nematode is feeding on the roots of the soybean that contains this this genome sequence, um, they aren't necessarily getting the proteins that they need uh, to to ultimately survive and reproduce. So um, most of the of the studies that have been done to this point have shown that 
uh, of all of the genetic resistance sources that we have available, uh, this one is going to be far and away uh, one of the one of the better ones that are going to be available to farmers. So yeah, very very exciting, and uh, you know ultimately we're going to be working very hard over the next couple of years to get this into the hands of farmers. I was going to say, what's the next step from here? Because obviously it takes a little time for something to go from research to commercialization. And so what's the kind of the timeline look like here in terms of getting this new gene available, hopefully? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that uh, the checkoff world and the research world has improved on uh, a lot over the last several years. Um, there's definitely been an, uh, a need and uh you know, we've we've come to the conclusion that uh, it can be difficult to get things from the research world into the commercial world. Uh, fortunately, we have staff members in in Missouri that work specifically on getting research technology into the hands of farmers. So that's what we've already started doing. Uh, we have had meetings with basically all the major players in the seed in the seed industry, um, who are all extremely interested in this technology. Uh, obviously, it takes some time for them to ultimately integrate it into their soybean lineups. But, uh, you know, just having those initial conversations at these very early stages uh, will will hopefully get this get this out to the commercial world quicker. And along with that, in Missouri, in our soybean breeding program at the University of Missouri, uh, they've already began breeding with this technology, uh, which, you know, Having that already integrated into soybean varieties, that should speed up that process as well. So, um, you know, we're still probably a couple years out from from really having this uh, in a in a space that's available to farmers. But uh, we're going to try to move that as quickly as we can. And uh, you know, that's something that the the board of directors at Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council have really pushed is to make sure that these research investments uh, ultimately that they have access to them. Well, in the meantime, until we hopefully get this new gene available for farmers, uh, any tips or thoughts you want to remind growers of as we deal with SCN and some of the resistance to PI88788, as you mentioned here, as we move forward here, Eric? Well, you know, there there are options. Uh, very, There's very few options for controlling soybean cyst nematode. Uh, one of them is uh, if if growers are able to and can find access through their seed companies to a peaking type of uh, soybean cyst nematode resistance, uh, that is one way and one current option that farmers have to rotate resistance sources. Um, oftentimes with the peaking source, the peaking type resistance, uh, we see a very limited quantity of, of that type and, and it also has a limited uh, maturity group um, range. So that can be troublesome, but uh, there are some, you know, seed treatments that can, can do an okay job on soybean cyst nematode. And then the last thing I would say as well is, you know, there are soybean cyst nematode tests out there as well that farmers could be doing uh, even this time of year where they are, are able to know their numbers and able to tell if the soybean cyst nematode is reproducing on that PI88788 resistance source. And if so, then obviously we probably need to have a more serious conversation about what some things that they could be doing are. Good thoughts. Folks can read more about the study online, mosoy.org. We've been talking with Director of Agronomy and Research with Missouri Soybean Association, Dr. Eric Osland. Eric, thanks for joining us on AOA today. We appreciate the time. Thank you. All right, coming up next, we'll talk with Lance Zimmerman from Robobank here on AOA. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. 
If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. And we're back looking at another lopsided matchup, Jim. Today we have a combine taking on a train. Yeah, that heavy train is about a thousand times heavier than the combine. No competition there. Right, especially given that it'll take at least a mile to stop that train. That's 18 football fields. It's no contest. Every day people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings. See tracks, think train. This message brought to you by Operation Lifesaver. A promise is potent. Born of intention, fueled by commitment, it's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, We've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, right now on the program, we want to take a look at the latest global protein outlook for 2024 from Rabobank. We'll also talk a little bit about some of the uh, volatility here in this cattle market recently. Joining us now for that discussion, Lance Zimmerman, Senior Animal Protein Analyst at Rabobank. And Lance, thanks so much for joining us here on AOA today. Hope you're doing well. Hey, thanks, Jesse. Certainly am. Happy holidays. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. Lance, let's dive in and first talk about this global animal protein outlook 2024 out from Rabobank here just a few weeks ago. And uh, for starters, uh, just give us some of the uh, the top highlights here. What are the what are the big two or three takeaways that you guys found with this latest protein outlook? Yeah, I think as we look across the entire landscape, uh, both all three, well, really even four, if you include aquaculture, major protein species, beef, cattle, uh, pork, poultry, and then, like I said, even aquaculture, you know, we're in a situation where across the globe, animal protein production is going in 2024, but it's really going to grow on the back of a lot of the aquaculture side. As you look at it, aquaculture and even poultry are, are showing some growth across the species while beef, pork, and wild catch type seafood are down. And obviously, as we think about it from a U.S. perspective, we would have some similar um, opportunities that we would see in the marketplace here. Beef and pork production are going to be down, while poultry is likely to be up. And then seafood and aquaculture, not quite as big of an industry here among North American producers, but certainly seeing that trend. And so overall, I would say production growth is in a, a slowdown mode, even though it's growing, it's much slower. And I think some of that is due to some of the environmental challenges that we're certainly seeing here in the U.S., Jesse, uh, as we think about the beef production decline that's facing us in the U.S., that decline is so significant that as we go forward, not just this year, but the next several years, the decline in beef is going to be enough to absorb any increases that may come out of Australia or Mexico or even Brazil. Well, thinking about the U.S. here, too, as well as part of this report, I, I know looking at not just that beef uh, cycle, but also poultry and pork, I, I know 
in the case of poultry, we've had a lot of issues with HPAI. So I wonder if anything like that was taken into account when you guys looked at this uh, latest protein outlook here for the U.S. Lance. No, that's certainly a, a factor that needs to remain in the back of our minds. You know, as you think about U.S. Uh, broiler production, we've been pretty fortunate in that high path avian influenza um, has really, by and large, uh, not influenced that segment uh, of the U.S. protein business as much. It certainly could, but the shorter production intervals of, of meat-type broilers in the U.S. have allowed those birds to be uh, less affected, relatively speaking, compared to egg layers, which clearly uh, we've seen some challenges over the course of the last several years with high-path avian influenza and turkey per uh, time horizon. But I think many of your listeners will note that as they they perused the grocery store and, and you know, I'm hoping most of your listeners were getting prime rib instead of turkey. But let's say they were getting turkey. They'll notice they had plenty of options and at a much cheaper price point than what they would have seen a year ago during the holidays. And so as we look at that going forward globally, that certainly has to be a factor, especially as we enter this winter season where we know we're going to have more uh, migration patterns getting awoken again as we have the seasonal changes among us. And that certainly means a threat within the U.S. market. But I think the one thing that's unique as we think about the U.S. market and growing broiler production, a lot of that's very similar to where we were at the beginning of 2023. Broiler producers were anticipating much tighter beef production, and so they really ramped up broiler production at the start of 2023. The challenge was beef production didn't decline at the start of 2023 as much as it did the second half of 2023, and so their margins tightened. Uh, their, their margins were quite negative, really, to start the year. We've seen an improvement in that as we've worked through the year. Um, but we're still talking about a 2 to 3% production increase, or I should say total supply increase on the broiler side for next year. Conversely, both beef and pork per capita supplies are currently being forecast for next year to be down 3 to 4%, uh, and all even bigger uh, percentage changes relative to the five-year averages, uh, 6 to 7% decline in pork against the five-year average, and 4 to 5% for next year when we look at the beef side. With this being a global report, we were looking at the U.S. there. I want to ask you about some global points as well. And I think the biggest one that always stands out to me is what's happening in China, Lance. I, th I feel like we talk about China quite a bit uh, when it comes to agricultural commodities and, and proteins, et cetera. What are some of those China numbers looking like as they battled their own share of diseases and their pork herd and more? How are things looking for China as we get into 2024? Yeah, that's a great question. As we look at what's happening in China right now, and really I would lump not, not just China into this category, I would say much of Southeast Asia, uh, whether that's China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, uh, what we're seeing is um, in the U.S. as we came out of the pandemic, we saw this huge resurgence in food service demand. Uh, we saw the same thing in all the other major Western economies, Europe, the US, uh, everybody was in the same boat. That as the restrictions eased and as confidence in the virus um, and its, its ability to, our confidence in our own ability to survive and thrive in spite of it, business boomed. That's not been the same in China. Uh, and, and other Southeast Asian countries. In fact, if you think about it, really, China only started getting out of their post-COVID restrictions a year ago right now. But what we're seeing as we look across that, that space is we're not seeing the aggressive resurgence in business travel. We're not seeing an aggressive resurgence in food service at near the degree we would have seen in the Western economies. And so that's certainly spilling over and affecting some of this and I think in addition to that, um, you have to factor in the fact that we have really aggressive inflation rates. Um, you know, certainly as we look at Japan and China, their consumer inflation hasn't been quite as aggressive as what we've seen in the U.S. and European Union or even Brazil or Australia. Uh, but they've still seen a situation play out where their inflation in 2023 and 2024 was 5 to 10% above where it was in 2019. And so there's some compounding effects when it comes to the inflation side of the equation and also just a general struggle 
with higher protein prices. And we all know beef, obviously, being quite high uh, here in the U.S. But really, when we look at it on a global basis, whether it's beef, pork, or even poultry, all of those numbers are sitting here 10 to 15 percent higher uh, than where they were pre-COVID levels. And so all of those things can weight down some of the export potential that's in the market. Lance, we've had a pretty volatile couple of weeks here in this cattle market. Uh, talk to me about what you're seeing right now with the uh, cattle futures and this uh, market outlook in general. We're in a situation where on the future side of the market, uh, there's a there's a lot of capitulation going on right now. Folks just trying to figure out up from down, left from right. Um, is this a supply signal? Is this a demand signal? Um, what's going on? And, and I think at the end of the day, um, we have a market that it's gone through a really aggressive rally, uh, and then it's been handed uh, one punch after another over the course of the last 45 days in particular. It started with cattle on feed reports showing the market that perhaps there's a little bit more front-end supply out there that it wanted to believe as it really drank the Kool-Aid of an idea of tighter supply, herd rebuilding, and the like. And the bottom line is it never materialized. In fact, not only do we have exceptionally strong heifer slaughter and heifers on feed, but as the fall run of calves reached market, uh, we didn't slow down heifer liquidation from the, the cow herd during the fall run. We've seen a high percentage of heifer calves entering sale barns as well. And so that was the first leg lower. The second leg lower from a pure fundamental standpoint is the box beef market just hasn't performed. Uh, it's been languishing. Uh, in that 290s area. And what we have to remember is, as we look back to late May and July, uh, we had a cutout that was up near 320. And so really, there's, the cutout's been stuck in a downtrend since the second quarter highs. And so from a purely fundamental standpoint, and we'll, we'll let all the conspiracy theories rest for another day, but from a purely fundamental standpoint, there's been a lot of challenges thrown at the market let alone all the other outside fundamental factors at play as well with the turmoil uh, overseas, uh, the, all the geopolitical unrest in the Russian-Ukraine conflict, the Israeli conflict and the like. And I think the market, quite frankly, is, is just looking for an opportunity to put some money on the sidelines and reassess everything. My biggest message to producers through all of this is let's follow the cash market. Let's allow the, the market to kind of get on solid footing. Let's see how the cash cattle and beef trade. And hopefully this market will prove itself uh, that it can once again get some green in the board and, and continue to build a, a bottom and then work towards a stronger market as we look towards spring of 2024. Well, good thoughts. Thanks again for joining us. Lance Zimmerman, Senior Animal Protein Analyst at Robo Bank. Have a great one. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jesse. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we'll talk with the ranking member of the Senate Agriculture Committee, Arkansas Senator John Bozeman, joins us next on AOA. On the December episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we learn about the Consider Corn Challenge 4 and finding new uses for corn as a feedstock with Troy Schneider and Sarah McKay from NCGA's Market Development Action Team. The Consider Corn Challenge is an open innovation competition that market development hosts every other year. We look to establish biomaterial products and technology that utilizes corn. So we're looking into the future. A lot of our winners to date, they've spanned a variety of different industries industrial uses. So that's things from bio-based plastics to replacing petroleum-based chemicals with these bio-based corn-based sources instead. If you take all previous 15 winners from Consider Corn Challenge 1 through 3, if they reach full commercialization with their products, the potential for additional corn demand would be 3.4 billion bushel. Learn more about the winning projects online at ncga.org and join us the first Wednesday of every month for the Monthly Grind on AOA. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this Market Update. Grains are starting off mixed but mostly lower this morning. 
Beans and wheat are down hard, while corn is down about five or six pennies. Now, we are seeing some good rains being expected in Argentina's grain belt in the days ahead. This should continue to set Argentina up for good yields and big crops when they harvest them in a few months. Now, it's a much different picture in center-west and northeast Brazil, where rains continue to be below normal, considerably less in some locations. That pattern is expected to continue over the next 10 days, with heat expanding to increase stress in the northern third of Brazil's crop belt. Production losses, however, have not fallen enough to justify rationing U.S. demand for soybeans with higher prices, and that continues to disappoint the bulls, particularly in light of expected increased output from Argentina in the coming year. Another factor here is the new president of Argentina. Javier Malay became president of Argentina on Sunday, and he wasted little time before starting to shake things up with significant implications for the commodity sector. Argentina slashed the value of the peso by 54% to 800 pesos to the dollar late on Monday, while also slashing social programs. Now, the soybean export tax will be 30% for now, with export taxes on other egg commodities at 15%. That's with a promise to move towards significantly reducing or eliminating those taxes in the future. Now, if Malay's reforms are successful, it could build a powerhouse egg exporter out of Argentina, but it will take a lot more than what he's done so far to accomplish that. Malay's political party only has a third of the legislative branch. Getting elected on promises for reform is one thing. Getting those reforms to the legislative process as voters realize the personal impact to them is quite another. The sharply lower peso should encourage farmers to sell corn and wheat, although they have few soybeans to sell ahead of this new harvest, as following last year's drought-shortened crop. It could also lead to a surge in inflation, which would include higher costs for crop inputs. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people, a neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When is the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, joining us now here on Agriculture of America, of course, we are watching what is happening with the appropriations process and the farm bill and much more. Where do things stand on Capitol Hill as we near the end of the year? Joining us for a conversation and an update on some of those things, he's the ranking member on the Senate Agriculture Committee. Arkansas Senator John Bozeman is with us here again on the program. And Senator Bozeman, it's good to catch up with you. Hope all is well. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me as always. Well, let's uh, dive in. I know uh, you are busy, a lot of meetings, trying to wrap up work here before the uh, holiday recess on Capitol Hill. Uh, let's start in terms of appropriations, because I know we need to get that done before we can really uh, look at getting that farm bill done. Uh, how are things going on the appropriations front right now? Where do things stand? Well, it's difficult. We we have a, a two-tiered approach to the appropriations. One's going to come due in January. One's going to come due in, in February. And so right now we're really kind of struggling to find what the what the top number is going to be. In other words, how much money are we going to spend? And so once that is officially uh, agreed to, then we can go through and and uh, do the the final allocation of the with the twelve appropriations bills. But informally, people, you know, the appropriations committee, the staffs get along very well. Democrats, Republicans, they're uh, conferencing among themselves, both in the Senate and the Senate conferencing with the House informally. So we're making progress. 
And uh, I am working really hard to make sure that we don't have a another continued resolution. Uh, you know, your listeners, this this is a situation where essentially you don't know what your budget's going to be for the for the next year after you're several months in the budget year. That makes no sense at all. How do you plan? You know, mm-hmm. it also makes it such that with the continued resolutions, you have to keep doing everything just the way you did it the year before. So lots of reasons to get this done, and, and I believe we will. So we're making progress, but we're not there yet. Well, I know with all the different appropriations, of course, uh, for many folks listening into this show, they're wondering about ag appropriations and that USDA funding, FDA funding. I know we have other things like energy and water development, defense, homeland security, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in terms of the USDA funding and the ag front, uh, what are some of the hangups on that side, if any, that, that we're trying to work through right now? Well, again, you can't really decide uh, on USDA funding until you know the top line, sure. what the funding number is actually going to be. So that's that's really the biggest hang-up. I work very, very closely with Senator Hoven in, in the uh, Senate. I'm on the Appropriations Committee. He's the ranking member, head Republican on appropriations uh, of ag, and does a tremendous job. So... Um, you know, we're, we're working hard to get through it, but, but it does kind of all go together, if that makes sense. No, that definitely does make sense. So, well, in terms of the farm bill, let's talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the extension of the 2018 farm bill, of course, so we have some certainty going for one year. As, as we look at getting a new five-year farm bill done, though, where, where does the process stand right now? I have to think that negotiations have still been ongoing, of course, uh, with all the committees on the Senate side, the House side, et cetera. Where do things stand? What's that outlook in terms of getting a new five-year farm bill done? Well, we're working hard to, to make headway. We we did pass the extension. We passed a one-year extension. And the reason for doing that were a number of things. It became apparent that we wouldn't get it done uh, prior to this year. That's not uncommon at all. When you look at past farm bills, usually it does run over. This year, this this Congress is a little different because we have uh, a little bit of turmoil in the House, and so as a result, we wanted to find a vehicle, a bill that was moving that we could attach this to. So uh, we were able to do that with the continued resolution that was passed a few weeks ago. Uh, I was really pleased that that we were able to extend all of the orphan programs, uh, the things that that needed that are in the farm bill, that their funding is a little bit differently. So it's intact for the next year. What that does is it allows us the the flexibility to continue to negotiate, to get a a good farm bill. People say, well, John, we've got to do something. Uh, My response to that is, no, we've got to do the right thing. Uh, We've got to make sure that, that... the farm community is taken care of. So this gives, uh, you know, breathing there to do that. The other thing that's that's the most important is it allows the farmers, allows our producers to go to the bank, and the bankers know that for the next year uh, there will be the safety nets in place that that they need so that they can lend the money. And and the farmers know that that if uh, something comes up, if there is a, you know, if it's a bad crop year or this or that, uh, then then the safety net is in place so that they won't lose everything. Senator Bozeman, are you worried about the farm bill and other things getting caught up in the presidential election cycle as we get into uh, officially into 2024? Is that a concern of yours or not? You know, it's really not. And, and some people are concerned, but I'm not. And the reason I say that is, is that the the vast majority of people in Congress want to get a farm bill done. Uh, it's in most of our states. It's it's number one as far as the the biggest uh, economic driver. Uh, you go to a state like Texas. It's not number one, but it's one in seven jobs. It's huge. So it's so important for so many different reasons and. As you know, farm bills aren't about Democrats and Republicans. It's sorting out the regions of the country. Uh, different areas have different agricultural needs. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And then the different commodities, which, again, are very different. So uh, that's that's what we 
what we're facing. The other problem that we've got now is this is a generational thing. We're in a situation because of inflation, the tremendously uh, increased input cost. It's The world is totally different than it was when we passed the Farm Bill in 2018. So we have to get the safety nets. We have to make sure that the farmers you know, have the certainty that they need uh, to risk what they risk every year to plant a crop. And right now they're outdated. Uh, they don't work. And so as a result, uh, that's going to cost some money. And uh, so we're committed. I was in a... Uh, here, a listening session in North Dakota. We've been all over the country. I think we've had been in 18 or 19 different states doing these. And, uh, you know, a lady spoke up and said, Senator, we need more farm in the farm bill. And I believe that that really sums it up. We've got to make sure that, that as we go into this, uh, we're not going to commit our farmers to five years of the same thing especially when you look at input cost. Every chart I've seen has them continue to rise for a while. They're already sky high. And then uh, also every chart I've seen has commodity prices going down. That's a bad recipe. So we got to adjust for that, and we're working hard to do that. We're, uh, you know, Senator Stabenow and I have a very good uh, working relationship. As I said, this isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's just trying to get things right. And it's complicated. This is a $1.5 trillion bill, massive amount of money. Uh, but you have to remember, only 300, uh, 300 billion of that has anything to do with agriculture at all. Uh, only about uh, 15%, 85% is nutrition. Senator Bozeman, I want to ask you about one other thing, uh, a separate but related issue to agriculture, and that's uh, the H-2A program and, and ag worker reforms. I know in November you joined with Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith uh, to call for additional time to for farmers and ranchers to be able to review some uh, significant changes to H-2A uh, temporary ag worker uh, program changes. Uh, your thoughts on that? I know that this has uh, been an issue that uh, agriculture's really been looking at. A lot of farmers rely on the H-2A program. Your thoughts on, on where some of those changes are at right now? Well, I'd, I'd go further than rely. You know, many farmers, it's the difference in, in being able to put a crop and harvest it uh, in, you know, it, it's that it's that important. And as I go around uh, the country, go around the state of Arkansas, it doesn't matter where I'm at, uh, H, H2A labor is the, the number one thing that I hear about. People simply can't get the, the people that they need to do these jobs. They're very difficult. And uh, uh, again, you know, the, the, there's tremendous labor shortage in every aspect of our economy. It doesn't matter if we're talking to farmers or, or whoever. Uh, like I say, it's, it's a big issue, but particularly in the farm world, H-2A is a good program. The problem is they keep raising the bar and uh, they don't like it. They'd like to, the administration would like to unionize all of the farm labor. So the unions don't like this. So as a result, the administration doesn't like it. And uh, But we need to protect the H2A program. We need to strengthen it. And rather than making it more difficult, more cumbersome for the farmer, uh, we need to, to streamline it and make it much more user-friendly. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that. You know, rather than, than these people having to be vetted every year, you know, why not do it every five years if they have a, a, a good track record? I mean, there's so many little things that, again, would make the program easier, but the administration seems to go the other way and just make it more and more difficult all the time. Well, Senator Bozeman, we do appreciate a few minutes of your time here on AOA today, and with that, we'll wrap it up. I wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I know we'll look forward to talking to you again in the new year. Thanks so much for the time. Well, thank you, Jesse, so much for having me, as always. Once again, the ranking member on the Senate Agriculture Committee, Arkansas Senator Republican John Bozeman, joining us here today on AOA. All right, coming up next, before we wrap it up, we're going to have a conversation with Paul Freeman, the director of the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council. He is part of the Clean Fields Alliance America Big Apple Tour this week in New York City, and we're going to learn more about what's happening on that tour in that conversation coming up after this here on AOA, Agriculture of America. 
Everyone has a community to lean on. A neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samsa.gov. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind, like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh-oh. Or that time you forgot to roll up your windows in the car wash. Fantastic. Yeah, a remote control would have come in handy then. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. But pre-diabetes does, with early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Life doesn't come with a remote control. So you're on your own with the wasps. You have the power to take control of pre-diabetes. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. On the December episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we learn about the Consider Corn Challenge 4 and finding new uses for corn as a feedstock with Troy Schneider and Sarah McKay from NCGA's Market Development Action Team. The Consider Corn Challenge is an open innovation competition that market development hosts every other year. We look to establish biomaterial products and technology that utilizes corn. So we're looking into the future. A lot of our winners to date, they've spanned a variety of different industries industrial uses. So that's things from bio-based plastics to replacing petroleum-based chemicals with these bio-based, corn-based sources instead. If you take all previous 15 winners from Consider Corn Challenge 1 through 3, if they reach full commercialization with their products, the potential for additional corn demand would be 3.4 billion bushel. Learn more about the winning projects online at ncga.org and join us the first Wednesday of every month for the Monthly Grind on AOA. Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one-third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different cultures and regions. There are twice as many pigs as there are people in Denmark. Did you also know that China is the world's lead pork producer? In 2020, they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat, which equates to almost 91 billion pounds. So the next time you dive into that plate of bacon, know that pork is the world's most consumed meat. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. 
Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Welcome back to AOA. Well, of course, uh, we've talked a lot here this year and, and really last couple of years about the expansion of soybean crush with new plants coming online and just all the different uses uh, for soybeans in terms of biodiesel, bioheat, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, etc. Well, going on here this week in New York City, Clean Fuels Alliance America is having their Big Apple Tour, and they're bringing a lot of folks uh, from the soybean industry and more to New York City to uh, get a look at some of the partnerships that we have ongoing between uh, New York City and using biodiesel and different clean fuels, etc. Well, one of the folks on that trip is the director of the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, Paul Freeman. And Paul joins us right now here on AOA. Paul, thanks so much for making the time to join us and uh, tell us a little bit more. Hopefully you've been having a great trip so far out there in New York City this week. Yeah, it's been a great uh, trip all here. It's, uh, it's great to be uh, providing solutions and uh, doing that now with something they can use in uh, their tank or in their bioheat or mm-hmm. wherever right now. Yeah, let's talk about this a little bit. I know uh, on this tour, you guys are, are getting to see, you know, a, a lot about uh, New York, but also, you know, showcasing how biodiesel, bioheat, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel are all becoming increasingly important. Uh, talk about some of the, the work that you guys are, are doing here this week in New York. Yeah, it's um, very eye-opening what uh, we're learning here, and it's just been a great partnership. Uh, it goes way back to 2002. We drove by uh, Central Park uh, yesterday, and they started using biodiesel in their maintenance vehicles and stuff in 2002. So it's been a long-term partnership that's uh, really made a difference out here. Now, I know that thinking about that long-term partnership and we look at the advancement of things like sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel, and we think about for Minnesota soybean farmers, I know that this is pretty, it's key because I know Minnesota, you guys are busy crafting biodiesel legislation and things like that. So talk about some of the importance of partnerships like this for Minnesota soybean farmers, Paul. Well, it's um, just exciting that... Uh, they need us out here. If every acre of New York was planted as soybeans, they could not meet the demand. So it's great that we can help them with that, uh, with the solutions. And um, it's great that we get um, higher uh, inclusions in this uh, more refining to meet the sustainable aviation demand. It's great that we got more crushed plants coming on and uh, we're going to be part of the solution out here. Well, and and thinking about as we move forward here, Paul, uh, what are some things you've you've learned during this tour the last couple of days? Has there been anything that you maybe weren't aware of that you've learned here over the last couple of days? Um, just reinforcing the fact on the, the BioGate has been a home run for us at twenty uh, percent of the uh, residents have uh, fuel oil furnaces yet, so. Um, They've really embraced that B5 they have in New York. Um, all the East Coast cities are doing mandates at different percentages because each state has their own ideas, which is good. But then um, today we uh, learn more about environmental justice and we're at Jane University. It's uh, finals week out here. So <laughs> they did a twist that the, uh, the students are testing us to right now on session um getting just a dialogue of information exchange back and uh, dispelling some myths that they had and uh, learning what their focus on environmental justice is Mm -hmm. and what we need to be working on well paul any uh I'll, i'll kind of flip this around to any challenges that you foresee as we continue to grow some of these different markets for for soybeans and the, and the use of, of soybeans for biodiesel and sustainable aviation fuel etc i mean are, what are you hearing talking with colleagues who are on that tour is there any challenges in front of us that we're concerned about here in the short term well the, it's just a, a huge thing that's happening here that uh, the consumer is asking for this. 
cleaner fuel, cleaner air to breathe. And we need to educate ourselves and make sure that they're getting what they're asking for. Um, on the sustainable fuels, we want to make sure that that's a product that, of course, soybeans are in, which is the best, my opinion, the best product to use in there, but uh, make sure that inclusion is right and not just cold blended with some um, petroleum things and labeled differently than it is. But uh, we need to make sure the consumer is getting what they're asking for. And that's kind of a big switch that we haven't connected with the consumers um, like that before. Well, Paul, uh, good thoughts. Before we uh, wrap it up and let you go here today, anything final you would share uh, just about your trip or just the the promotion of uh, using soybeans in multiple different ways or anything else going on uh, from the uh, Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council? Anything else you would add for us today? Well, one thing I found interesting was that uh, on the school buses, we see them going up and down the roads and burning just regular diesel the air quality in the bus is poorer than the air quality standing behind the bus. So using biodiesel, cleaning that up, it's an improvement that we can use all through the United States. And I must compliment our local bus companies are progressive, and a lot of them are using biodiesel. I need to thank them for that, And but uh, more can be used. Well, getting to see biodiesel's impact in New York City and continuing to promote soybeans for many different uses. Folks can learn more as well online, mnsoybean.org. And with that, we have been talking today with Paul Freeman with the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council. Paul, thanks so much. Safe travels home, and we'll look forward to talking again in the future. Yes, thank you. And once again, the director of the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, Paul Freeman, joining us here today on AOA. We're out of time on the program. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we will look at the latest ag economy barometer numbers with Dr. Jim Mintert from Purdue University. We'll also talk propane with Michael Newland from the Propane Education and Research Council. And we'll get a look at the markets with Jim McCormick from agmarket.net. All of that and more coming up tomorrow here on AOA. Again, that's going to do it for the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted card to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Being blind doesn't always look how others may think. Stargard disease was supposed to define me. Retinitis pigmentosa aimed to overwhelm my family. It tried to cut me down. A blinding eye disease attempted to force me away from doing what I was born to do. But it cannot stop me. I have the tools. I will keep moving forward. Pushing past the limits of this disability. I know where to find support and where I can be seen. Loss of sight won't blind our vision. Innovative research, educational resources, supportive community. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is leading the charge in finding treatments and cures for blinding diseases. Learn more at fightingblindness.org. A public service message from the Foundation Fighting Blindness.